they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. I am Ari Ingle, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for anyone joining us for the first time, Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize support against the cultural boycott of Israel. To learn more about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com, or you can go to creativecommunityforpeace.com. Um, we're glad to have all of you with us today in our public square and joining us for the fourth installment of our Dispelling the Myth series, which is an educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. Today, we're gonna to be in conversation with Dr. Saba Sumek and Dr. Sheree Trotter about the history of Jewish ingenuity in the land of Israel and how the issue of being indigenous to the land of Israel has been weaponized against the Jewish people and Israel. Today's conversation will work a bit differently than the first few. First, we'll have Saba present about the history of Jews in the land of Israel. Then Sheree will present about how this issue has been weaponized and politicized. And then we'll bring both of them on for some questions from all of you. So please feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and I'll try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the, uh, the discussion. Uh, to kick things off, I would like to introduce Dr. Saba Sumek. She is the Associate Director at the AJC here in Los Angeles and a lecturer at the Academy of Jewish Religion in California, where she teaches religious studies and Middle Eastern history. She received her BA in religious studies from the University of California, Berkeley, uh, her master's in theological studies from Harvard Divinity School, and her PhD in religious studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara. She was also a scholar in residence at Oxford University with the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. She is the author of numerous books, one of which won the gold medal at the Independent Publisher Book Award in the religion category. Welcome, Saba. How are you doing today? Hey Ari, thank you so, so much for having me. Thank you and Creative Community for Peace and Matthew for these important conversations. Thank you. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you. You're one of our favorite guests and we always learn a lot from you. So I will let you take it from here. Okay, thank you so much. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna share my screen and I put together a quick little PowerPoint. So just bear with me for one second. Okay. When Ari asked me to give this talk, you know, I of course said yes, I'll say yes to Creative Community for Peace for anything they ask for me to do. And um, it makes me sad that we have to give this talk because it is so ridiculous that Jews have to prove their indigeneity to the land of Israel. Because when we look at history, when we look at archeology, span when we look at the Bible, although people could question the historical, uh, historical accuracy of the Bible, what you cannot question is the significance of Israel to the Jewish people in the Hebrew scriptures. So I'm saying this and I'm giving this talk, not because I don't believe that Palestinians deserve a state, not because I deny that Palestinians also have historical roots to the land, but because 
this is being weaponized against the Jews. And as an academic, I see it all over college campuses. I see it with other professors. I see it with college students. In May, when you had the Israel-Gaza war, you had people who didn't know anything about Israel, Palestine, all of a sudden posting like Diet Prada. And you could say, well, who's Diet Prada? Who cares? They have 3 million people who follow them. And this was permeated all over the internet where Israel isn't a country, it's a settler colony. Settler colonialism is a form of colonialism that seeks to replace the native population with a new society of settlers. And this goes on and on, basically denying that Jews have any right to be in the land of Israel, that they never existed there. And while you can't be a colonialist in a country you have lived in for over 3,000 years, that doesn't make any sense. It's a historical, and quite honestly, it's asinine to make these comments. Quickly, and I don't wanna turn this into a history class, but I will just very quickly, because we need to look at the history of the Jews in Israel. Jerusalem is mentioned over 699 times in the Hebrew scriptures, what Christians refer to as the Old Testament. I hate referring to it as the Old Testament because Old Testament is a concept of supersessionism, but the Hebrew scriptures refers to Jerusalem almost 700 times. All the holiest sites in Judaism are located in the land of Israel. The book of Genesis, which was written around 700 to 950 BCE, talks about the land of Israel. Exodus specifically discusses Jews working their way. At that time, they were referred to as Israelites working their way into this land. The book of Exodus, and I'm talking about it from a historical perspective, was written around 6th century BCE. So this predates the establishment of Christianity by a thousand years and Islam by 1700 years. Abraham we historians put place his date around 1800 BCE is the father of Judaism. He's the first of the three patriarchs. His descendants, according to the Hebrew scriptures, were enslaved by the Egyptians, whether or not you historically believe that's correct. Um, but nevertheless, the story tells us that they were enslaved by the Egyptians, taken out of Canaan, um, and then brought to modern day Israel. And the word Israel comes from Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was renamed Israel by the Hebrew God in the Hebrew scriptures, specifically Genesis 32. Now, let's look at it within the modern context. Jews are said that they are white. Jews, Israel is seen as being a white colonialist country. Well, number one, over 50% of the people who live in Israel are Mizrahi Jews, Jews from the Middle East, brown Jews and black Jews, and even Jews who are Ashkenazi, meaning Jews who come from Eastern Europe, are traditionally and originally from the Levant, from the land of Israel in that region. In 2010, Haaretz, an Israeli newspaper, published an article where it said Jews and communities around the globe show more genetic similarities with, with each other than they do to their non-Jewish neighbors. So it proved this article discussed how 90% of Jews are genetically linked to the Middle East. Archaeological and hist historical evidence shows that Judaism and the beginning of the Jewish people began in Judea. Judea was a biblical term for what is known today as the state of Israel. It is through conquest and it is through imperialism 
that ethnic Jews have been exiled, what we refer to as the diaspora, have been dispersed from their ancestral homeland, Israel, and subsequently then settled all over the world. Let's look at the early roots. So second millennium BCE, Israel was promised to the three patriarchs. Now this is what we do know historically. And why do we know this? Because archeological evidence has proven this. And around circa 1000 BCE, King David ruled the region and he made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. In 931 BCE, so remember we're looking at 3000 years ago, King David's son, Solomon, is credited with building the first holy temple in ancient Jerusalem. 721, 722 BCE, the Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. I'm an Iranian Jew. Iranian Jews are the oldest Jews in the diaspora. We originate, we go back to the Persian Empire from about 2,700 years ago, from the time the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom and sent the northern kingdom into the diaspora. Then the Babylonians came. They conquered Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's temple. The second temple in 516 BCE was able to be built and Jerusalem went under Persian control, went under Greek control, and then went under Roman rule. And it was under Roman rule that Jews really experienced the worst diaspora because in 70 CE, the Romans conquered Jerusalem and they utterly destroyed the second temple, leaving one wall up, the Western wall, because historians believe Titus specifically put that up and left that there so he could always show the Jews what the Romans did to them. And then by 132 CE, the Jews were expelled by Romans. Um, this was after the Bar Kokhba revolt, a revolt against the Romans. And in that point, they were scattered all over, mostly in the north of Israel and other parts of the Middle East, and then worked their way into Europe but Jewish presence was always in the land of Israel. By the fourth century, the Byzantine Empire takes control of the land. The Byzantine Empire is the Eastern part of the Christian Roman Empire. Then by the seventh century, the Muslims come and capture Israel from the Christians. And then the Crusaders come and capture Israel from the Muslims. And then again, you have the Muslims capture it from the Crusaders, you have the Mamluks who are Egyptian ruling class take control and then Israel becomes a part of the Ottoman Empire which then goes under the British mandate of Palestine. Then by 1947, the partition of Palestine into Jewish and Arab states and then 1948, the state of Israel is proclaimed by the Jews. Now, when we're looking at Solomon's temple, this is what archaeologists have a rendering of what Solomon's temple looks like. And remember, this was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then you had Herod's temple, the second temple, which became a lot larger and a lot bigger and basically was definitely what defined Jerusalem. The Western Wall is the Western part of this temple that remained. So if we see a comparison between Herod's temple and Solomon's temple, we see how large Herod's temple is and really what the Romans burnt to the ground again, ex except for the Western wall. When we look at Roman rule, it was absolutely brutal. 
Titus conquered Jerusalem. He destroyed the second temple, as we talked about. The Jews then dispersed. By 132 CE, you have the Jewish revolt. And by 135, the Romans renamed Jerusalem, Aelia Capitolina, and Judea um, as Palestina, or what later on becomes known as Palestine, in order to take the Jewish identification of the land of Israel away from the Jews as a term of punishment towards them. When Christian rule came in the fourth century, what happens was Rome becomes Christian and Jerusalem then becomes a center of Christian pilgrimage where people would go there. At that time, Constantine's mother, Helena, was sent to go find Christian areas um, that they believed Jesus participated in, the, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the Church of the Annunciation, etc. So this is 1300 years after the Jews established Israel as their homeland, the Christians come in and establish it as a sacred place for themselves. Of course, in the 11th century, you had Pope Urban II, who basically preached a crusade against Jews and Muslims and said, if you literally massacre Jews and Muslims, you get a straight ticket to heaven. By the 11th century, Jerusalem was conquered by the Crusaders and in, in and its inhabitants were utterly slaughtered. And by the 12th century, Muslims recapture the cities from the Christians. Now, Muslim rule. Why is Jerusalem important for the Muslim community? For Muslims, they believe that the Prophet Muhammad was born in 570 CE in the Arabian Peninsula, <clears throat> what is today Saudi Arabia. So Muhammad was born 1,100 miles away from Jerusalem. In the early seventh century, after the Prophet Muhammad passes away, the caliphs Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman decide is, Islam is a proselytizing religion like Christianity, that they need to proselytize the religion and go out and conquer and spread the religious tradition. So under the first caliph, Abu Bakr, he succeeds in unifying the Arab tribes in the peninsula and says, let's spread Islam. His second successor, Umar, then decides to take the head of the um, Arab world out of what is today Saudi Arabia and places it within the Umayyad dynasty in what would be today Syria. At that point, he decides to basically conquer the Middle East. He wins a battle against the Byzantine army, remember the Christian Roman army, in 636. And at that point, Jerusalem falls to the Muslims in 638, to the Umayyad dynasty, and then 640 um, respectively, Caesarea Falls. So this is 2,384 years after the Jews established Jerusalem as their homeland. By 690, the Umayyad dynasty builds the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Holy Rock on top of Solomon's temple that was destroyed, what is referred to as the Temple Mount. So here we see the Temple Mount, and here we see the Western Wall, the only remaining wall from the Second Temple. So the colonization of Jerusalem, as I just discussed, from the 13th to the 16th century, Muslims and Christian armies fought over Jerusalem, and the Jews were powerless against these armies, but there was always a Jewish presence in the city. By 1900, Jews made up the largest community in the city and expanded their settlements outside the old cities of Jerusalem. Now, even through the Roman conquering, the Christian and the Muslim invasion of Israel, 
And with the Romans renaming Israel Palestina, the Jewish people never left their homeland physically or spiritually. We have Jewish prayers in the diaspora that talk about the yearning to return back to the ancestral homeland. Even before that, you have Deuteronomy 6, 4, 6 Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says, Hero Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is ours. What is referred to as Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. You have the Book of Lamentations, which was written post first, um, which was written after the 586 conquest. Um, with the first destruction of the temple where Jews are lamenting to get back to Jerusalem. So this was written post 586 BCE. So again, around that time period, you always had that yearning for Jerusalem. During Passover, it is a ritual for Jews to say next year in Jerusalem. So for 2,500 years, Jews have been crying for the freedom and self-determination of Jerusalem while they have been in the diaspora. The Hebrew language is the common language of Jews, is the language of Jewish prayers. It is a Semitic language coming from the land of Israel that dates back to the second millennium BCE. It is the Jewish liturgical language, which has united the Jews for 2,500 years in the diaspora. And it is the language, modern Hebrew, that is spoken in Israel today. Every single Jewish holiday revolves around Israel's agrarian cycle. You cannot take the land and the ecology away from our faith and our religion because Israel is a land-based agricultural religion. So specific holidays specifically deal with Israel's agricultural festivals and are celebrating Israel's harvest, Israel's land, and Jews pray in the direction of, is, of Jerusalem, specifically the Western Wall, showing the importance that Jerusalem and Israel has had for the Jewish community for 3,000 years. And then, of course, you cannot deny archaeological evidence of Israel. It shows that Jewish life can be found in more than 30,000 sites in Israel with antiquities dating back centuries. So the archaeological evidence of the Israelites in Israel, it traces back to what is referred to as the Iron Age, so 1200 BCE to 332 BCE. So people will say, okay, King David and Israel is mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures, but we actually have non-Jewish, non-Israelite archaeological evidence that King David and his dynasty existed in Jerusalem outside of the Bible. For example, the scriptures that we see here is a part of a monumental stone collaborating the military victories of Hazael, the king of the Arams. So this is actually supported in the Hebrew scriptures in 2 Kings chapters 8 and 9. This dates back to the 9th century BCE. And then here we have another papyrus fragment dating back to the 7th century BCE, which is the earliest non-biblical source to mention Jerusalem in the Hebrew language. This actually came from the New York Times in 2016. This was perfect timing because this is when UNESCO denied that Jews have any right to Jerusalem and that there's no Jewish presence in Jerusalem. And right about this time, archeological um, Israelis found this and this was published, proving how ridiculous UNESCO was by denying that. Um, you have this, the epitaph of the king of Uzziah of Judah. This is eighth century BCE, as we see here, the king of Israel. And then, of course, you have the Western Wall. You cannot deny Jewish indigeneity to the land of Israel. 
when you look at this wall. I mean, you can't deny it in general, but this wall is, as I mentioned, the only remaining wall from the Temple Mount. It is the site of the first and second temples in Jerusalem, and it dates back to the second century BCE. If you even want to look at the influence of Greco-Roman uh, pagan and then later on Christian influence on the Jews and the Jewish synagogues, you could look at this, which dates back to the sixth century BCE. All of this is saying Jews have been in this land and we have been in this land for millennia. Just recently, in November 2021, a Israeli girl was going through this archaeological dig with her family that all of us do if you go to Israel and you don't find anything, but she ends up finding a rare 2,000-year-old coin in Jerusalem that was minted by a priest in 68 BCE. He was a priest who joined the Jewish revolt against the Romans. So again, you cannot deny Jewish history in this land, even though Palestinian academics, the Palestinian Authority, Hamas, and now woke, what I refer to as slacktivists who don't know anything about Jewish presence in the land of Israel, completely deny this history. So in my conclusion, I present these facts not to deny Palestinian indigenousness or opposition to Palestinian statehood. I absolutely believe in a two-state solution. But I present these facts to refute the claim that the Jewish people have colonized a foreign land and exploited its resources and its people. You cannot deny Jewish indigeneity to the land of Israel. Erasing Jews from the land and history and referring to them as settler colonialists makes it impossible to get to a two-stage solution and resolve this conflict. This is the framing that we see from the Palestinian Authority, as I mentioned, from Palestinian academics, academics in the West now, from Hamas. And what this does is basically makes them never come to a compromise for a two-state solution and an independent state, which was offered to them in 47, 2000, and 2008. So I will stop my share now. And I'll pass it on to Dr. Trotter. Amazing, amazing, Saba. That was absolutely amazing. All right, Matthew, as uh, we'll, we'll turn you off for the moment. And let me um, now uh, welcome Dr. Cherie Trotter. Uh, she is a Maori New Zealander of the Te Arawa Iwi tribe. I hope I got that right. And holds a PhD in history from the University of Auckland. She's a writer and researcher and has been published in new newspapers and journals around the world. Along with her husband, they founded the Holocaust and Anti-Semitism Foundation in New Zealand which is dedicated to telling the stories of the Holocaust and standing against anti-Semitism. This year, Cherie co-founded the Indigenous Coalition for Israel that seeks to raise a collective Indigenous voice in support of Israel locally and internationally through education. Welcome, Cherie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, well, um, just to thank you again, it's wonderful to be part of this, uh, this webinar. And uh, that was a wonderful uh, introduction there and that history is, is so important to have to set this up. So what I'm going to be covering is really talking about how indigeneity has been weaponized against Israel and um, the legal and political issues that surround it and why it's important for Jews to claim their indigeneity to Israel. So I'm going to briefly uh, touch on the background to this debate uh, and uh, just to show how this idea has become so pervasive. Uh, 
I'm going to talk about why it matters uh, and talk a little bit about defining Jews as Indigenous to Israel, and, and then find, finish up by discussing indigeneity and international law. Excuse me. So what we have is, uh, as um, Dr. Saba has explained, there's this narrative that's become very much entrenched in popular thinking and academia and civic society and uh, Palestinian um, the political realm. And it's a false narrative that uh, basically says that foreign Zionist colonizers have come to Palestine and dispossessed the indigenous Palestinians. And this false assertion has been used as a weapon uh, to attack Israel, to undermine, demonize, and delegitimize the state of Israel. So I'm going to, I'm hoping now to show you how this message is a factual, a historical, and a contextual. And it's repeated over and over again in these different fora and have become very effective tools of persuasion. So I'm going to start with academia because I believe it's really come from academia. This is where it has had its starting point and it's been promoted by Palestinian groups and human rights activists and has filtered out to media and politics. So I'm going to bookend this discussion um, with two uh, academics, with Edward Said and with Rashid Khalidi. And uh, I'm starting with Edward Said because he has had such an influence on academia. So a little bit of his background, he was an Arab who was born in Jerusalem in 1935. He moved to Cairo in 1947 and uh, was sent to America by his parents in the 1950s where he was educated on American campuses. And eventually he became a professor of literature at Columbus University. So his father was a wealthy Christian Palestinian businessman and an American citizen. And his mother was born in Nazareth of Christ Christian Lebanese and Palestinian descent. Uh, Edward Said had a huge influence on the humanities as one of the founders of the academic field of post-colonial scholarship. And his book, uh, Orientalism from 1978, really became a foundational text and is considered one of the most influential scholarly books of the 20th century. So Said developed this idea of the other in his examination of the way in which Western scholarship treat, treated subjects of the Orient or the East. Uh, the central premise of Orientalism is this idea that the Orient is a fundamentally different, exotic, dangerous, unchanging and other place. He argued that this concept of a foreign and strange East formed a set of assumptions which enabled the West to think of itself as distinct and as superior. So um, Said argued that the early scholarship um, by Westerners of the East was biased and projected a false and stereotyped vision of otherness that facilitated and supported Western colonial policy. So uh, Sayed's ideas have had a huge influence in the humanities and 
In the New Zealand context, the idea of the other was easily translatable to examining the way in which Western scholars represented Māori in the histories. And so it's easy to see how his ideas uh, were taken up by a lot of, in a lot of different contexts. Now, in a recent biography uh, by Timothy Brennan, who studied under Edward Said and remained a friend of his until his death in 2003, he shows that while Said was uh, urbane, Western educated, cosmopolitan, a polyglot, he was actually uh, an atheist. In terms of his politics, he was radical and he aligned with the radicals of the Palestinian movement. Uh, it's also interesting as a side note uh, to, to see how complicated his psychology was. He was in therapy for most of his life and it seems that he was at war with himself as an Arab alone in America, a New Yorker. Uh, so Brennan believed that he felt inadequate and was jealous of the militants of the Palestinian uh, resistance. So that's kind of an aside, but it helps to give a bit of context. So his, his politics were radical and he sided with the PLO in the uh, 70s and 80s. He was extremely loyal to Arafat. And in the late 60s and 70s, he was supportive of a military response and uh, believed that armed struggle must be defended as one of the options. He was also elected to the Palestine National Council in 1977. Now, Brennan states that um, Saeed meticulously hid much of what he believed in order to be heard. Now, Saeed became influenced by Iqbal Ahmad, a, a Pakistani political scientist, writer and academic, who was known for his anti-war activism and his support for resistance movements globally. In 1971, uh, Ahmad gave a lecture to PLO supporters, which actually opposed the military option and argued that in order to win the moral high ground, they needed to convince people that Zionism was exclusionary, uh, discriminatory and colonialist, and they needed to follow the example of the ANC. So this was a shift in thinking for uh, Said, and Said began to change his position Said was also influenced by Michael Foucault, whose theories uh, address the relationship between power and knowledge and how they're used as a form of social control through societal institutions. So keeping all of this in mind, in terms of his scholarship, he wrote The Question of Palestine in 1988. He wrote The Politics of Dispossession in 1994. And he was very effective in conveying the idea of Palestinians as perpetual victims. Now, his books are highly politicized. They're biased, uh, they distort history. Scholars have criticized his choice of historical texts and the ignoring of relevant evidence, his butchering of quotations to fit um, a political text. His work is conceptual rather than historical, and he doesn't try to be objective and give both sides of each issue, but rather ask questions from his own perspective as a Palestinian in exile. So I think it's that's quite significant and important to keep in mind that he was a professor of literature rather than of history. Um, but he had such an influence, not only in, this, uh, in the narrative around Palestine, uh, but also in history in general.
So I'm going to fast forward now to Rashid Khalidi, who's a historian, a Palestinian historian. He's the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, also the editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. And he's published a lot of work on Palestinian history. And this most recent work here uh, was published in 2020. And I think this quote here sums up where he's coming from. It says, the modern history of Palestine can best be understood in these terms as a colonial war waged against the indigenous population by a variety of parties to force them to relinquish their homeland to another people against their will. So we've, we've already seen, you know, how false this is, that Jews are in fact the indigenous people of that land. But this message has been um, pushed uh, from academia and in these other fields as well. So there've been a number of rebuttals to his work and one is by uh, Benny Morris, who states rather than an imperial power acquiring political control over another country, settling it with its sons and exploiting it economically, Zionism was a movement of desperate idealistic Jews from Eastern and Central Europe, bent on immigrating to a country that had once been populated and ruled by Jews, not another country, and regaining sovereignty over it. The settlers were not the sons of an imperial power, and the settlement enterprise was never designed to politically or strategically serve an imperial mother country or economically exploit it on behalf of any empire. The land was known to lack natural resources. So that's quite a, um, a good summing up of some of the problems of settler colonial theory. Another historian, Derek Pinsler, has also challenged the colonial narrative, pointing out that Jews returned to their ancient homeland not for its strategic value, natural resources or productive capabilities, but rather because of what Jews believed to be historic, religious and cultural ties to an area known to them as the land of Israel. Zionism was based in concepts of return, restoration and reinscription. So settler colonialism is, is deficient as a tool for historical analysis. It's a politically driven framework that interprets history according to a particular agenda. And in the protest, in the process rather, the evidence is twisted to meet a desired end, and the history itself collapses in the pro process. It's not robust. Of great significance, as we've heard, is the fact that Jews are in fact indigenous to the land, and we'll go into some of those definitions of indigeneity a bit later. Uh, there's always been a Jewish presence there, as we've heard. By contrast, just as an example, settlers coming to New Zealand were so different that Māori thought they were seeing ghosts. They'd never seen white people before. It's just a little example of how ridiculous it is, this idea of Jews being settler colonialists to their own land. Jews belong to the land of Israel. And they didn't settle there primarily for economic gain, but to re-establish themselves as a people in their ancestral homeland. So there was the push out of the countries where they faced relentless persecution. And there was also the pull that for the first time in centuries after that change of Ottoman policy in the 1830 and in the 1830s, that Jews had the opportunity to return, which wasn't available beforehand. So as we've heard, there's always been that longing to return and that deep connection to the land. 
And there are many reasons why the settler colonialism framework doesn't fit. Um, one example is that there was never an intention to assimilate Arabs into Jewish culture. The intention of the Zionists was to leave them as Arabs while they would be free to live as Jews, as opposed to settler colonial countries like New Zealand, where it was intentional government policy to assimilate, assimilate Māori, to destroy their culture and replace it with Western culture. Uh, and, and this is what settler colonial theorists call elimination by assimilation. So that's a brief kind of summary of some of the um, academic background to this debate. And I'm going to quickly talk about civic society, uh, NGOs, uh, human rights activists, and try and draw some links here too. So just remembering back to what I said about Iqbal, uh, Iqbal Ahmad, um, the Pakistani political scientist, uh, the way that he argued that Zionism was exclusionary discriminatory and colonialist, that they needed to follow the example of the ANC. And um, keep in mind that close connection with Said. It's not surprising that in 1975, we had the UN General Assembly Resolution 3379, which determined that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. While this was revoked, in 1991. But prior to this in 1975, uh, there was a Soviet Arab strategy um, to attack Israel. Uh, there was an anti-Zionist campaign during the Cold War years, and they worked together, the Soviets worked together with the PLO at the UN to oppose Zionism. During 1976 to 1984, the Zionism is racism resolution was reiterated time and time again at the UN, sometimes by even larger majorities. After the resolution's adoption, Zionism began to assume mythical proportions in international discourse as a global cause of most of the world's problems. This trend was not confined to the Arab Muslim countries in the third world. It also penetrated the West, especially universities. During this period, the vilification of Zionism turned into a permanent feature of international life. That Zionism was a metaphor for universal evil became part of common knowledge, accepted or at least not contradicted by almost the entire international body politic. Israel's response to this was interesting. Um, they expected that it would go away because it was nonsense. And of course, it is nonsense. It's not true and it doesn't make sense. But Israel, I think, really underestimated the power uh, of, of this mantra. Uh, and so for almost a, a decade, Israel didn't do much about it. And then they realized that they needed to fight it and mounted a campaign to have it overturned, uh, which happened in 1991. And I think that there's a parallel that can be seen here with this treatment of Zionism, with this indigenous issue. And I'll come back to that a bit later. So the 1975 Zionism as racism was a key, key moment. Another key moment was the 2001 Durban um, conference against racism. And this was uh, a six day NGO forum that was attended by 6,000 representatives of about 2,000 NGOs. And the attacks on Jews were virulent. It became known as an anti-Semitic hate fest. 
So the, the efforts to undermine Israel's legitimacy come not only from the United Nations, but also from a coalition, this coalition of NGOs that function as the spearhead of an anti-Israel network. And we, we've seen in the last year, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have both published reports accusing Israel of apartheid, uh, which, you know, there's a, long, there's a long legacy of that as well. But this really goes against the grain of the peace and diplomacy that is breaking out in the Middle East with the Abraham Accords. So these accusations of Zionism as racism, of um, Israel as an apartheid state, they're afactual, ahistorical, acontextual. If you unpack the history, the facts and the context, there's no way that Israel can be called an apartheid state or a settler colonial state. Uh, now, just briefly to show how widespread this is, the developments um, were paralleled in New Zealand. So this is a photo from the anti-apartheid um, protests that happened in the early 1981. And uh, many of the activists involved in the anti-apartheid movement were also um, activists standing up for Māori rights. They were connected to the black, black activist movement of um, the United States of America. So it was part of an international movement and there, there are all these connections. So this anti-apartheid movement here later morphed into the pro-Palestinian or more accurately, the anti-Israel movement. And the leader of this uh, protest here, one of the leaders is the leader today, the same guy is the leader today of the anti-Israel movement. And he's still trying to claim that Israel is an apartheid state. So that's a brief look at civil society, NGOs. We're gonna quickly look at Palestinian politicians, keeping in mind that originally um, Palestinian leaders, they weren't called Palestinian leaders, they were Arab leaders back then, uh, were supportive of uh, Israel's uh, Jewish rights. Uh, the mayor of Jerusalem from 1899, who can contest the rights of the Jews regarding Palestine? Good Lord, historically, it is really your country. And in 1919, Hussein, we will wish the Jews a most hearty welcome home. The Jewish movement is national and not imperialist. But that didn't last long. And um, this is the speech of Arafat before the UN General Assembly, 1974. Zionism is an ideology that is imperialist, colonialist, racist, it is profoundly reactionary and discriminatory. It's united with anti-Semitism in its retrograde tenets and is when all is said and done another side of the same base coin. Um, then moving forward to 2016, we have the Palestinian foreign minister who was threatening at this time to sue the British government over the issuing of the Balfour Declaration. And he claims that British were complicit in the historic crime of the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine at the expense of the indigenous Arabs who had lived for thousands of years on the soil of their homeland. So in this rendering, Jews are de-indigenized and supplanted by the so-called indigenous Palestinian Arabs. 
And so this has infiltrated out to popular media because of journalists, of course, journalists are educated uh, on the campuses where um, this kind of thinking is promoted. And this is uh, taken from a program last year. Uh, this is a New Zealand journalist who is part Māori. And uh, it was during the Gaza war. And she said, it sounds maybe a tiny bit like colonization, tiny bit familiar to me as a Māori person in New Zealand. Would that be fair? <clears throat> or is it a totally different ball game? And I wrote to her and told her uh, it was a totally different ball game. Um, but in the New Zealand context, it's very easy to transplant our local situation onto the Middle East and see it as colonialisms, where foreign colonialism, sorry, where foreigners have come from a distant country and subjugated the local population. And for a lot of New Zealanders, of course, there's very little knowledge of the true history of Israel or the Middle East. So why does the question of the indigeneity of the Jews matter. Why does it matter? Uh, because there's this commonly accepted narrative that Israel is a settler colonialist state where foreign Zionists invaded and dispossessed the so-called indigenous Palestinians. This is a false historical construct. It's full of inaccuracies. It's a piece of historical revisionism, which politicizes history and by necessity has to twist the facts to fit the model. It's highly selective in its treatment of the details and the facts. And this narrative is used to demonize Israel. Aside from its basis and falsehood, it's a major contributor to anti-Semitism. While we can't necessarily say all anti-Zionism is anti-Semitic, we can certainly see that it's a major contributor to anti-Semitism. And the narrative is used as a political weapon to delegitimize Israel. And there are many examples at the UN. Uh, for example, the, um, the UNGA Jerusalem resolution of last year, 12911, not only neglects to use the Hebrew name for the Temple Mount, uh, but also goes further by repudiating all of Israel's claim on Jerusalem. It asserts that any actions taken by Israel, the occupying power, to impose its laws, jurisdiction, and administration on the holy city of Jerusalem are illegal. So this is all part of the push by the Palestinian Authority and Arab states across the UN system to rebrand Judaism's most holy site as an exclusively Islamic one. So let's just move on to defining Jews as indigenous. So indigeneity uh, describes the ethnogenesis of a people group within a particular land. It's within that their ancestral land that their unique culture, practices, religion, and language developed. So for the Jewish people, um, that is Israel. Now, I need to keep in mind that there's no set definition for indigeneity. However, the following criteria uh, has been established and published in UN policy documents, deriving from Jose Martinet Cobo's uh, definition, and it's generally accepted uh, as a working definition. And I think we can see, um, given the... Um, talk that we've had from Dr. Sumac, I think we can see that, you know, Jews definitely fit 
these um, these categories, and I probably don't need to take the time to go through each one uh, at the moment. Um, we've talked about the continuous presence, the strong links to territory, the historical continuity, the distinct culture that was developed. Uh, I'll speak about the forming non-dominant groups of society because I've been told I, I'm not sure what the evidence is that this was added later. Uh, as a way of excluding the Jewish people. But in my, to my mind, it, it's inconsistent. It doesn't fit with the other ones because being a non-dominant group in society is a political facet, which is different to all the other criteria, which are internal facets of being indigenous. So that one, I think um, I wouldn't take on board too much Certainly, we have examples of um, Indigenous people who now are dominant in their society, like the Fijians. So, becoming regaining their um, their um, position has has not meant that they are no longer <clears throat> Indigenous. And I think it's important to understand the concept of peoplehood as well, because peoplehood is very much part of being indigenous, that you belong to a people group. And um, I've heard a lot of Jewish people kind of push back against the idea of indigeneity. And I think it's because they come at it from an individualistic point of view. Um, so I think it's important to understand this notion of peoplehood. And uh, this is quite a good quote here that explains that. While many Jews did not define themselves as Zionists, they'd always have viewed themselves as a people. Even the earliest sacred sources insist they constitute a people, a chosen people, bound together by covenant with the Lord. Palestinian nationalism, nevertheless, chose to define Jews as a faith community rather than as a people. This view embodies Palestinian rejectionism. It does not acknowledge how Jews understood themselves over millennia and ignores the fact that the Nazis and their accomplices determined to eradicate the entire Jewish people as a race, not individuals with a particular religious identity. So what of the Arab peoples? Well, in essence, the Arab peoples, uh, their indigeneity didn't wasn't developed in the land of Judea, Samaria, that land of Israel, it developed in Arabia. And they did not traditionally claim to be indigenous to Israel. The Quran says that Allah had promised the Holy Land to the Jews, all of whom would return there by judgment day. So at least a thousand years before the ethnogenesis of Arabs in Arabia, a self-identified Jewish people had already been established in Israel. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on that because I want to move on to this next part about indigeneity and um, international law. And here I'm drawing on the work of Nan Greer. She's a professor of anthropology, ecology and geography and has worked a lot in the area of indigenous land rights. So Professor Greer uh, refers to a couple of key documents through which Israel has self-declared their status under state law as indigenous people. And this is the first one, the declaration of the establishment of the state of Israel. 
The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here, they first attained statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance. And the second one is the basic law, Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. The land of Israel is the historical homeland of the Jewish people in which the state of Israel was established. The state of Israel is the national home of the Jewish people in which it fulfills its natural, cultural, religious, and historical right to self-determination. The right to exercise national self-determination of the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. So Greer argues that while not possessing the word indigenous in the Hebrew language, Israel has utilized all the terminology under international law to declare itself indigenous to its homelands, the nation state of Israel. And through this self-declaration, Israel protects its indigenous population nationally as a distinct people. Israel also protects itself as an indigenous nation under the accepted working definition of the United Nations. However, she argues that if both Israel and the international community allow populations of merely long-standing presence to declare themselves indigenous, while not having a language, culture, or religion distinct to the geographical locale or nation state, it allows them to jeopardize indigeneity everywhere. This ultimately leads to the justification of colonial domination of indigenous people throughout the world, a risk that is simply not acceptable to the UN and the international community. So under international law, the Druze, the Bedouin and other Arab groups may not be considered indigenous as they do not have a language and religious beliefs distinct to Israel. So how does indigenous status help Israel? Well, with respect to decisions by UNESCO, for example, um, Israel as a self-declared indigenous nation has the opportunity to request immediate redress and revocation of the malicious uh, political motions put forward by the UN. And they can demand respect of the Jews to their own sacred sites and lands as indigenous people. Um, however, Professor Greer also argues that the declaration of Jews as indigenous in no way denies the right of other ethnic groups to their human rights. As such, a declaration is without prejudice to other cultural groups. So she uh, asserts that the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples provides an excellent framework for including all stakeholder voices in land disputes. Uh, that recognizing both Jews and Palestinians as indigenous to the Levant could help settle land claims for all relevant ethnic groups in the region. In the Levant, the indigenous rights of any group do not necessarily negate the indigenous rights of other groups. Um, the human rights of all peoples in the region must be respected uh, as well. So while I agree with Professor Greer's sentiment, uh, I think history shows a track record of intransigence and rejectionism by the Palestinians and an unwillingness to recognize any Jewish rights in the region and indeed an attempt to assert the indigenous rights of the Jewish people. 
But Nan Greer and others like Ambassador Ellen Baker have called on the government of Israel to acknowledge the importance and centrality of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of of Indigenous People and endorse this um, central international document, uh, because at the moment Israel hasn't signed that document. And this would be a first step in protecting the right of Jewish indigeneity in their own land. Uh, So I think that's really important. And here I want to tie back to the fact that the Zionism is racism mantra had such a destructive impact. And it took a while for Israel to recognize that and do that uh, and deal with that. And I, I, I think this indigenous issue is similar in a sense that the Palestinian narrative has has been very effective and very influential and has kind of infiltrated all aspects of um of society and I think you know Israel should do whatever it can to push back on that. So in my view the value just to sum up of the indigenous argument for Israel is firstly as a defense against the ongoing attacks by the UN, the NGOs and the international community, a defense based on historical facts and secondly is an important tool for strengthening Jewish identity and giving confidence in standing up for what rightly belongs to the Jewish people. So that's the end of my presentation. Thank you. Thank you. That was excellent as well. Um, I want to bring Saba back in. Um, and we just have some questions from the audience for both of you. And while I may direct it initially to one of you, uh, both of you feel free to chime in. Let's get Saba back in. There we go. And the first one is uh, one big lie that uh, the anti-Israel movement Palestinians have used, even Abu Mazen, is that the Jews today are not really the ancient Jews who were dispersed by the Romans, but really descendants of the Khazars. Uh, Maybe Dr. Trotter, do you know anything about this? Can you maybe explain about this myth? Um, Sorry, I'm just trying to stop my screen share. Matthew, you can end the screen share. There we go. Right. Okay. Um, Sorry, could you ask me that again? Yeah, I'm not sure if you know the the answers. I actually know a little bit, but uh, anti-Israel activists um, and even leaders like Abu Mazen have claimed that Jews are not really the ancient Jews who were dispersed by the Romans, but really descendants of the Khazars, this Khazar myth. Uh, Do you uh, know about that and maybe explain a little bit about that? I know a little bit about that, but I haven't looked it into into it too deeply. So I might pass that on to Dr. Sumit. I think I, she did. Sorry, she, this you, is yours. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's any legitimacy to this, which is right. why neither of us really know anything about this. But right. right so this is this is this is something that pops up on social media all the time, and essentially. Uh, the Khazars were Turkic people that lived in you know the region what was now Turkey and either in southern Ukraine which is pretty relevant, about a thousand years ago. And this Khazar king adopted Judaism himself. And then some of the people in the kingdom also converted to Judaism. But it's been largely debunked that that is any connection to the Middle Eastern Jews, Sephardic and the Mizrahi or the Ashkenazi Jews. And historian after historian has debunked that as just a total myth. But um, I think it's one that they try to claim, once again, to sort of deny that that attachment to the land of Israel. Um, here's another one along the same lines a little bit, how uh, you know the anti-Israel movement, the Palestinians have tried to rewrite history, trying to almost trump the Jewish claim to the land, right? They claim Jesus was a Palestinian and Jews are just religion. They claim sometimes that 
uh, the Palestinians are descendants of the Philistines. And other times they go back even further to the descendants of the Canaanites and even the Jebusites, who were the Canaanite tribe in control of the old city of Jerusalem right before it was conquered by King David. So I, I don't know if you know the answer to this one, Saba. These are, these are really historical questions. What happened to the Philistines and the Canaanites? Uh, do we know what happened to them? And I think Dr. Trotter sort of talked about, you know, where the Arab community came from, but you can discuss that if you like as well. Sure. So I, you know, I am not a historian, a biblical historian in that context. I, I look at modern Israel and I write a lot about the Sephardi and Mizrahi communities. But what we do understand of the Israelites was that, you know, you're kind of brought up believing that they were monotheists. But if you look at the Hebrew scriptures and literally everything that the prophets are telling us, it was this constant flirtation with other gods and goddesses. So the idea was that it took a really long time for the Israelites to actually come to that place of monotheism. Within that process, histor some historians believe that the Canaanites, the Philistines, they were also basically, um, they became a part of the Israelite population and later on became known as the people of Israel. So that is one ideology that happened. The others is that they, you know, like other uh, uh, pagan traditions at that time, they basically died out. Either they died out or they became a part of the Israelite tradition. Right. Dr. Trotter, anything to add on that? <clears throat> That's my understanding as well, that they um, died out, basically. Right, right. And I think one uh, something that the anti-Israel movement likes to use is say, you know, the Palestinians are descendants of the Philistines. You know, the Romans were pretty clever to name the area of uh, Syria-Palestina after the Jews' ancient is uh, enemy, the Philistines, almost like as a slap in the face. And that's Absolutely. where the name came from. But the Arabs, yeah. um, as Saba talked about, came to the, the land of Israel, the Levant, from the Arabian Peninsula in the 600s in the Muslim and Arab conquest. So they really have no connection to uh, either the Canaanites and the Philistines. But I think you're right, Saba, the, Can the Canaanites, I think their DNA, there's been some... Uh, Documentation. I, I think even National Geographic did some uh, report on this, that there's a little bit of Canaanite DNA found throughout the people in the Middle East as they were sort of a, a wandering people. Um, here's another question. Since both of you are in academia, why do you think academia and the media as well promote and accept a narrative that denies that Jews are indigenous to the land of Israel? Saba, you were at UCLA. Any insight into this? I... I'm, I, I can't even tell you how horrific this is on college campuses. And it's not only happening from let's say UCLA's Asian department where they put out a solidarity statement in May, the whole department um, and did not mention at all that rockets were being thrown into Israel and just basically claim that Jews are colonizers. I mean, these are historians in Asian American studies who are taking along with this. But what's even more horrific is that you have Jewish studies, Israel studies and Holocaust studies professors who also believe in this narrative and sign these petitions that Israel's a settler colonial estate. Now, I don't think any three of us sitting here would say that you cannot criticize Israel or criticism of Israel is specifically anti-Semitic. Um, we all believe that Israel is just like every other nation and should be treated like every other nation. And I'm always happy to come back, Ari, and talk about what's legitimate criticism of Israel, what is anti-Semitic criticism of Israel, when that, you know, appropriates anti-Semitic canards and tropes. So no one's sitting here say saying Israel is this unbelievable country that's never dealt with racism, this and that. I mean, you had uh, Dr. Trotter had Benny Morris. Benny Morris talks about this. 
But what is so fascinating is that they appropriated this ahistorical trope and have utilized it. And this is something exactly as Dr. Trotter talked about. It was nothing that Israel or Jews even thought we had to discuss because how can Mahmoud Abbas be on the Temple Mount looking at the Western Wall and saying Jews have never had a claim to this land. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But the fact that historians have now appropriated this as a way to qualify their anti-Zionist ideology. I mean, look, as I said, I teach about um, Mizrahi Jews and you have Ashkenazi historians writing that we never had a hard time in the Middle East. The Jews had a really good life. And the only reason why the Mizrahis escaped or there's this concept of the Mizrahi narrative is because Israel's trying to justify what happened to the Palestinians, completely negating our narrative of what happened to us living in the Arab world and under the Islamic revolution of Iran or just under Shia Islamic Iran. So I can't even justify because it is so insane. And as I, I use this word before, asinine, which is not a great word to use. It's not a beautiful word to use, but it really describes how ridiculous this is. Right, right. It's uh, the idea that to continuously put the Jews and Israel on trial and whatever charge they want to make, that Jews have to defend it um, is sufficient, whether it's baseless or not. And some and of are- yeah. Sorry. All right. And just to say, sorry, to, um, but that if you are a Zionist on a college campus, if you are a student or a non-tenured professor that believes Israel has a right to exist, no matter how left or right you are on that, that you are bullied, that you do not get tenureship because you don't agree with the woke slacktivists and what they're saying. And so there's a whole other element to it for Jewish students, on, for Zionist students on college campuses and for Zionist professors who do not have tenure. Right. And, and I think this is one big challenge. And I saw a question about this. When you have both of you on here and you can explain the history, it, it makes sense. But all the other side has to say is the Palestinians are indigenous, the Jews aren't. And that's all they need to say. How, how do we overcome this? What can a student on campus say? What, is there a quick, easy answer? How do you simply overcome this? I don't know if either of you thought about this or have advised student groups on what they can say to do about this. Dr. Trotter? Dr. I'll let you go first. Yeah, yeah, I think it's something that Jewish people really need to claim and stand up for. And I've seen some young, I've seen some groups on um, Instagram that do that. And they, they just really put it out there uh, that they are indigenous to the land. And you, you can see that the way the Palestinian has, has worked, uh, the way the Palestinian narrative has worked, is just by repetition of simple slogans. And really i think that's what well first of all you know jewish students need to claim their identity and be proud of their identity and i'm sure most of them do but they really need to understand clearly that they are indigenous and be able to stand on that uh firmly right right i think that's very important and i think to educate young people about this history so they understand that their ingenuity who they are should not be denied or even um uh, defined by other groups. It's, uh, it's insane that every other minority will be able to give them the, the chance to define themselves. But when it comes to Jews, everybody seems to want to define us. There's one issue, uh, someone wrote in here, the Philistines came from Crete, and yet the Philistines were a seafaring people that did come from Crete, uh, which through DNA evidence, and actually were based more in the Gaza area, which is where you had the uh, the, the David and Goliath and a lot of uh, the Samson, all of that stuff happened in where, where, where Gaza happened. Um, 
So, and, and this is something maybe Dr. Trotter or Saba, you can address uh, because it's also something that sort of gets turned on its head and used against the Jews in Israel. Uh, Pre-1948, the Jews were actually described themselves as Palestinian in British Mandate Palestine. And wasn't it the Arabs that still, you know, considered themselves Arabs, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's that's true, because Palestine was really just a geographical area until the British Mandate came along and established it as the British Pen Mandate for Palestine. So um, prior to the establishment of the State of Israel, anyone who lived in that area called themselves Palestinians. Uh, so Palestinian nationalism developed very slowly. And in that period, it was beginning to develop in reaction to Zionism, but it really didn't become a thing until Arafat in the 1960s, 70s. And even up till that time, a lot of leaders would deny that they were Palestinians, that they were very proud of their Arab, being part of the Arab nation. So there was a period of change and flux that happened over, over that time. Yeah. Right, Saba, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, you know, I do. I just want to add to that, um, just speaking to lots of Palestinians and, you know, talking to Palestinians, people like to say that, yes, the Arab world did absolutely nothing to help the Palestinians. And they still, we could argue, do absolutely nothing. We, we could do a whole hour on the way Lebanon treats their Palestinian refugees, et cetera. Um, but I think a lot of times people will say, well, and the narrative used to say, well, Palestinians should just be a part of Jordan. Palestinians do see themselves as distinct from the rest of the Arab world. Um, and they do see their history as being distinct. Just as an Iranian Jew, I see myself separate than a, you know, a Polish Jew, an Iraqi Jew, et cetera. Uh, but exactly as Dr. Trotter said, that nationalism didn't really originate until after, well, when they saw Tel Aviv being built and the idea of Jews coming back. the revision of Hebrew, the revival, the newspapers, et cetera. That's right. It was kind of a reaction to what was happening around them and, and right. it developed. And, you know, this is what culture does. It, it develops, it changes. We're not set in concrete as a people. And, and I can say that as Maori, Maori culture has developed and, um, you know, that's that you can't sort of set a, a culture uh, in concrete, as I said. So there are some people who today will just deny that there are Palestinian people. And I think, well, you know, there are people now who call themselves Palestinian and they may, might have been formed out of resistance to the state of Israel, but that's how they want to identify themselves. So why not just accept that? Right. And I think people should uh, rewatch last week's episode with Dr. Inat Wolf, who really discussed about how the identity of the Palestinians came about. Um, and whether ancient or not, it exists today. And so that should be respected as well, um, since they do consider themselves uh, a, a people on their own, separate from some of the other Arab communities uh, in the region. Um, a couple of just quick questions here. Uh, Saba, was there ever a country in the area where Israel is now uh, after ancient Israel? Was there ever another country established? I don't believe so. No, I'm sorry. We repeat the. Was there another? Was there Israel? ever a was there ever a country established in the land of Israel after the the Romans dispersed? No, 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 no. It was it was no. It was always Palestina, um, and it was again as we saw. It was just this back and forth between Arab and Christian armies. Right. 
So uh, right, well, as you mentioned, like under the Ottoman Empire, it was just a region for four or 500 years. Absolutely. It was in its own country. And then it was a mandate under British occupation, British imperialism. Right. Um, last question, Dr. Trotter, uh, you're a Maori. Have you, do you, how do you work with other indigenous communities where you're from to sort of build bonds between indigenous communities and make sure that they understand and, and stand up for Jews as another indigenous community? Well, that's what we're trying to do. That's what our goal is in setting up the Indigenous Coalition for Israel. And uh, in Māori, we have the saying, kanohi ki te kanohi, which is face-to-face. So face-to-face engagement is the best way to develop relationship with people, to develop understanding between peoples. Uh, So it takes time, but uh, that's the best way to bring understanding. And uh, that's what we are aiming to do. Educate as we meet with people, talk with people, bring more understanding towards the issues. Amazing. And I think in America, and we, we need to make sure we're doing the same and Creative Community for Peace is trying to do the same uh, through a, a number of initiatives. Um, I just wanna be respectful of everybody's time. Uh, there are so many questions in the chat where can people reach you offline, uh, Dr. Trotter and Saba? Uh, you can go to our website. There's a contact form there, indigenouscoalition.org. Okay. And then Saba? Uh, you could find my website online, just sabasumer.com. If you send an email that way, I, I will respond to you. Okay, great. Both of you are probably you have the least social media presence of anybody <laughs> that we're interviewing on this. <laughs> You've taken yourself smartly and rightly off of social media. So you I just can't handle the death threats. The, the, I just can't handle all of that. Right. So. It's, it's very smart. Anyhow, thank you everyone for joining us today. This is an amazingly insightful conversation and presentation. Uh, next week, we shift a little bit away from Israel and I sit down with uh, Professor Robert Rockaway to discuss Louis Farrakhan the Nation of Islam, and the Jewish hatred they foment. Uh, Please make sure to sign up for all the discussions, and you can donate at ccfpeace.com. That's ccfpeace.com. We hope to see everyone online. Everyone stay safe. Thank you, Saba. Thank you, Sherry. 